Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Ansri. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Anne as a person. Professor Sri is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of your accomplishments and give you a very brief, uh, quick uh, snapshot. Ansui is professor at the Arizona State University, distinguished adjunct professor at University of Notre Dame, and distinguished, distinguished visiting professor at Peking University and Fudan University, China. She is the 67th president and fellow of AOM and a fellow of AIB. She is the 14th editor of AMJ, founding president of International Association for Chinese Management Research and founding editor-in-chief of Management and Organization Review. Recently, she was elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She co-founded the Community for Responsible Research in Business and Management. She has received numerous awards, including the Best Paper Awards from AMJ, ASQ, Journal of Management, Center for Creative Leadership, Applied Leadership Research, and AOM Distinguished Service Contribution Award. She received the WAIB's Woman of the Year Award in 2021. Thank you, Anne, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. First question always, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? I smile when I think of it, that question. Uh, when I was seven and eight, I remember going with my mother to watch uh, the Shanghai operas. That was the early days of communist China and everything's so cheap. We were dirt poor, but this is her only entertainment. And she would take me there every time. She watched the same operas over and over again. So I dreamt that I wanted to be an opera singer. I would perform at home by myself, no audience, the whole play. <laughs> and, and, and of course that's kind of naive. And then years later, I was in community college. I found myself really enjoyed directing plays. So one time we had a competition and I won the first prize. So, wow, I thought maybe I could become truly an opera, a stage performer, but no, I don't have that talent. But I really like directing complicated, you know, performances. And, and I found that skill actually came in handy during COVID last two years. We put on quite a few webinars and involved many speakers and many chairs and so forth. And I was a behind the person, behind the scene person, organizing the whole thing. Everybody else on stage. I never went on the camera and I love it. And this is what I dreamt about when I was, <laughs> and that dream stayed with me, unrealized dream. Perfect. Uh, well, what's the earliest moment of awareness between foreign versus domestic for you? Oh, that was an interesting question. Uh, it's actually very early. I was nine years old and my mother took me from Shanghai to Hong Kong. Okay. And we emigrated there. Actually, we smuggled into Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is a totally different place from Shanghai, different dialect, different, um, different food, different customs. So I was like, had a culture shock. But as a child, you adapt quickly. And then my next time I realized I was a foreigner was I was, I was 20. I went to Minnesota, Duluth for college. And I was in this small college, about 5,000 students. I was the one of two Chinese students. I don't think there were any other foreign students there. And, and I become like the novelty of the campus. So here's the Chinese girl, the other one's the Chinese boy. And so I have American 
roommate. I learned a lot from her and my American friends, classmates took me to their home for Thanksgiving, for Christmas. I learned so much about Chinese, about American culture from them. And I knew that I'm foreign and I had an advantage by being foreign because people pay attention to me. So, so this foreign domestic was kind of part of my identity from the very beginning. I'm the foreigner in many, many places. And still today, I feel like I'm a foreigner everywhere I go, but I also feel very comfortable everywhere I am. Interesting. So uh, how did you choose academia? Well, that was an interesting question also. I uh, was working for Control Data Corporation in Minnesota back in the early, uh, late 70s. And I have the opportunity to attend a PhD, um, PhD summer camp uh, recommended by my professor. And I was only a master's graduate. Uh, for some reason, they felt that I could be part of it. And I fell in love with the students there. I thought they were all so, so smart. And I was just thinking, oh, I should get a PhD. I can be smart like them. And then be before long, I was working and I realized I don't have all the answers that managers were asking me. I felt like I need to, to learn more, I need more education. So I decided to study for a PhD. That way I can go back and be a better professional for them. So that's... Uh, so yeah. uh, in Minnesota, when you went to this uh, summer camp, this is the time that you chose uh, IB as a field or? No, uh, no, not yet. No, scholarship not in general. Okay. okay. No, not, not at all. Mm -hmm. How did you get into IB? Um, it, it happened by chance. <laughs> I, I was a traditional OB researcher after I graduated from UCLA and I um, I uh, worked at Duke, worked at UC Irvine. 15 years later, I found myself moving my family to Hong Kong to be the chair of the management department at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. So once I'm in Hong Kong, I'm a very contact sensitive person. I started studying managers, Chinese managers and Chinese firms. So all my research is about most, uh, all about China since, since uh, that time as the last 25 years. And then over time, uh, I uh, became more and more interested in research, uh, in the development of research in the emerging economies. So I began writing about research uh, in uh, other contexts and the importance of contextualization and so forth. So that's how I stumbled into IB. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, it was a good stumbling. <laughs> Uh, something that is not on your CV, but uh, something that may, not many people would know about you, something that, that they might find interesting. Well, I, I don't know how interesting it is, but, but people, when I review my secret, people always thought that they were surprised. Uh, and, and that is, uh, I, I am actually a very, very shy person. I, um, I don't like to be in parties with lots of people. And every time I have to teach or give a presentation, I have stage fright. And even today, I am having stage fright right now, <laughs> <laughs> feeling very nervous about, about everything. Um, but I overcame that when I have to perform, so to speak, you know, but, uh, but being, being shy is a, is a well-kept secret and, and then I have to live with it all my life, so. Uh you were one of the first uh, people I listened to when I was a PhD student at Ohio State. Uh, I listened to one of your talks and uh, I said, uh, well, this person is the single most polished speaker I've ever seen in my life. Thank you. <laughs> so 
Uh, it doesn't uh, come out uh, as uh, as shy. Uh, you're very uh, trust kind. Me. You're very kind. You're very kind. Okay. The second interesting question for me: uh, What is the one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? The regret question. Do you have any regrets? Well, um, I can say, and I, I don't want to come across sounding being me being very very um, arrogant. I I really. Um, felt, I thought a lot about what I do, uh, even though I also stumbled into doing too much more than I should do. But I, I really don't feel like there's anything I've done that I wish I hadn't done. Um, but there's one thing that I think I wish I learned more as a student. And that learning is on um, how to do experiments uh, is a kind of maybe an unexpected answer. I, I am a survey researcher. I recognize over the years now how, how much limitation there is to survey research, um, construct validity, generalization, um, ambiguous causality. It's just lots of problems with survey research, but I am stuck with that because that's the only thing I know how to do well. Uh, I am now a strong believer in experimentation. I'm particularly intrigued by uh, or, or convinced by the importance of uh, what we call randomized control trials. And, 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 and two, two years ago, three years ago, when the economic science Nobel winners, the three of them won the prize for, uh, for their research on reducing poverty in developing economies uh, with uh, using primarily uh, or only the randomized control trial method. Uh, they were able to help identify ways to improve crop yield, uh, improve public health, improve early childhood education. And for that work, 20 years, uh, they won the Nobel Prize. And everything they've done, as I look at their research, say, we could do that. And we managing researchers, we've done lots of experiments in the field, in the early years of our field. We've stopped that. And that's a shame. We need to go back and do more intervention research. Interesting. Uh, what was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Oh, well, that's a, it's a painful story. Uh, it has to do with what I said before that I sometimes forget uh, and, and, and tend to do too much. Um, it was a time when I was a department head in Hong Kong. I, um, I was at the same time editor for AMJ. I started a new research center. We started a new PhD program. And we, uh, I have big research grants from the university to study Chinese management. And the, uh, uh, the, the director of the executive education came to me and said, could you teach a class for us? I thought I should not do that, but I couldn't say, I didn't feel like I could say no. Um, I was an okay teacher and I've done executive education before, so I didn't think I would do badly. So I said, okay, I told him that I won't do you know, really good, but I'll probably be okay. And he said, don't worry about it. You know, you know you're so charming, you can do it. <laughs> so, so, but I was wrong and I, the students complained. Um, I was totally embarrassed and I was humiliated and I learned a hard lesson. And the lesson is that unless you're really confident you can do it well, and it does nobody any good uh, when you don't do it well, you're not being fair to the students, you're not being fair to yourself. So know my limits probably is the best lesson I have learned, which I continuously try to remind myself 
but sometimes I still forget. Um, that's why we postponed our interview for so long because I was trying to remind myself not to take on more things than I can handle. So, and I think many, many young people have that fall into that problem too, that they try to do everything. That was very honest, thank you. Uh, what are you most proud of? Um, I am uh, um, most proud of the students and my daughter. I'm proud of who they are now, what they've accomplished and how they are contributing to the world. And, 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 and they are so accomplished and despite being stuck with me for a few years during that <laughs> developmental years, because I'm not that good a teacher, I'm not that good a mother, uh, but they all know my intentions are good. I want them to succeed. I want them to have a happy life and I want them to make a difference in the world. And I'm very, very proud of them, every one of them. And they are all doing, doing great things and contributing to the world in their own ways. So. Well, to the audience, uh, this was a lesson in humility, by the way, uh, but uh, okay. The last question in the personal segment, what are you most passionate about? Well, um, I uh, am passionate about many things. And most of these are pretty big things, you know, climate change, inequality, poverty, um, injustice and so forth. And of course, these are not problems any one person can solve. And, uh, but I believe that we as social scientists uh, can help contribute knowledge to solve those problems. So my current passion is to help our community, our scientific community to transform our research from filling gaps in the literature to solving important problems in the world. And to do this, uh, a, a group of leading scholars worldwide, uh, myself included, we started a uh, responsible research for business and management network, okay? And, uh, and this took encourage this transformation from research focusing on publishing papers to uh, solving problems uh, in the world. Understanding and advancing our responsibility as social scientists has been my passion for the last 10 years. Perfect, thank you. Now about uh, more detailed uh, talk on research, uh, how do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly or who don't read academic work in the first place? And how do you explain the importance of your research? Especially for instance, uh, when you talk about, uh, for example, the, re the responsible research, how do you explain uh, what you do uh, to people. Okay, well, for, for, for people that we meet in a pub in Ireland, you know, think about that winter time, you know, sitting in the pub, having a conversation with, your, with new people you meet. Uh, I, I would tell them this. Uh, I study managers. Managers work in a network of relationships. I study how they can be responsible and responsive to the people to interact on a daily basis, either on an operational or strategic level, okay? I study how they can be responsible leaders to their employees, to their customers, to the supply chain, and to the community at large, okay? And I 
would study, and I not only would I, and I would continue, and I have studied managers, um, their values, uh, their behavior, how they understand roles, uh, their personality, such as humility, and also um, their uh, ability to think deeper and broader about the role of business in society, okay? And I really believe that this ability to think broader and the role of business can make these managers more responsible people in their, in their organizations. And I feel that IMB education should really focus on these aspects as well. So, so why is it important? I guess it's kind of obvious to me. If you think of managers about 10% of the population in any company, okay, uh, maybe less, you know. So, so this small group of people manage most of the workers whose lives are affected by them. And they manage services and, and, and product production that affect the lives of customers, the quality of it, which can affect customers. And while they're making decisions about products and services and strategies, they have to think about whether there are any side effects of the corporation's uh, production processes that may have negative impact on society as a whole. And we can cite examples of examples, companies, how they deplete the resources. They, they produce global warming. They create inequality, right? They create work stress that's costing US alone more than $300 billion of mental health, physical health costs. So managers are so important in population. So this is what I study. And if you're a manager, I thank you for your job because you are important in our society. So that's, I wouldn't talk about responsible research to them because I wouldn't want them to review our dirty laundry that we are not being so responsible. <laughs> we want to know a lot So it's a house, it's, a, it's a within the family. We, we have to be mindful about who we are, what we do as social scientists. True. I mean, negative externalities is the most overlooked right. portion, yes. obviously. And, and we, uh, do, we have some of that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the omitted variables, understudied areas in IB research, in your opinion? Um, I, I would like, with your permission, to, um, to uh, maybe not talk about specific variables, maybe talk about issues, mm-hmm. okay? IB issues that we, uh, that, that we have not paid enough attention to, and I would like us to pay more attention to. Uh, there are three areas I'd like to speak about. Hopefully, it won't take too long. First, I think that IB to research or focus more on the grand challenges in the world, because I believe MNCs can be a force for good. And we have literature, papers on how MNCs can contribute disaster reliefs in regions, how they can, um, uh, uh, we have studies on compassion organizing in regions that are suffering from fire, hurricanes and earthquakes and so forth. And we have global studies on global supply chain, how they uncover practices that protect human dignity and improve uh, ecological justice, okay? So IP scholars should remember that science is in service of society and not in service of just the owners or shareholders of the firm. So that's uh, more attention to global, global challenges of our world. The second, is that, that I like to uh, see more research on um, when I talked about before, actual interventions, ideas that change practices. I was truly inspired by the uh, econ- economic uh, Nobel Prize, Nobel laureates on their research on reducing poverty in the developing world. And I believe that we can, uh, uh, by, by 
doing more intervention research, we can actually uh, give our scholars uh, the opportunity to be creative, to think about methods of management that managers haven't thought about yet. So we normally study what they practice, what's the best practice, and then try to diffuse that to other companies by creating general knowledge. But we also can create new methods of management, which we did again in the 60s and 70s. There's a lot of research in operations, you know, B, uh, that look at new methods like job enrichment, goal setting, um, uh, just-in-time uh, inventorying, and so forth, right? Those are the methods that are created by scholars that, and some of which, of course, came from the industry as well. So these are the opportunities that can allow IAB scholars to use their talent in creativity to develop new methods that could improve MNCs and local management practices. So the third area I would like to, to, to suggest uh, for IB scholarship is to have more appreciation for indigenous management research, okay? Which I mean, uh, looking at local phenomena in different regions of the world, using local, uh, um, uh, using local language, samples, methods, and involve scholars, researchers who are familiar with the local context, which could include economic, social, cultural, political systems, right? So indigenous research actually aims to test and assist, does not aim to test existing theories, in other words, they are unconstrained by existing frameworks. So if you do indigenous research, you identify knowledge or theories that are similar to existing ones from other economies, that's great. You have the potential of a universal theory, okay? But unless you do true indigenous research and you, at any time you use a theory that is developed in different contexts to a new context, you never know whether that finding is because of the artifact of the theory you use or the method you use. So true indigenous scholarship is really critically needed in order for us to discover both context specific knowledge, which is useful for the local context, also potential universal knowledge that's useful for all contexts alike. And both kind of knowledge is important uh, for, 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 for management. Uh, because we have MNCs, we have local management, local local corporations, and and small enterprises, and so forth. Okay. Sorry for the long answer, but that's, uh, those are three very very important areas. I, I feel that we've understudied. And um, this was good. This was very helpful. Uh, about uh, creativity in scholarship, what do you think about creativity? Well. I um, I'm not creatively as researcher. I don't know that I have any much more to add to the creativity experts, but but to me, uh, creativity in scholarship you know, is about divergent thinking, about um, finding new answers from seemingly unrelated areas. Okay, it's about thinking outside the box, about making non-intuitive connections between two seemingly unrelated ideas. So creativity is about coming up with explanations that, um, that defies common logic. And that is about discovering patterns in a data set that seems unobvious about developing a method that reveals insights that others' methods do not. So it's all about divergent thinking. Okay, and about allowing your mind to have the space 
the room to think widely and broadly, to read widely and broadly. Now, you didn't ask me how to get to be creative. <laughs> and that's part of the answer is that you read literature unrelated to your own research topic. And, and you also uh, join interdisciplinary research teams because you'd be exposed to a different way, a different frame, different lens of looking at the problem. And that can really add to creativity and uncover potential answers that any one discipline cannot cover. So that's, uh, that's uh, my take on creativity. I mean, there's a common theme in, in your uh, interview. There's a common theme in the conversation. Um, about the next five to 10 years of ID research, the, the next uh, five to 10 years of the field, uh, what do you see uh, as a promising area? What are the big questions that uh, we should be asking? How, how would you talk about, what's, what's the next big expected uh, area for us? Well, um, I'm glad you asked me what, what, what would I like to see? Um, um, we focus on related to the last question, of course. Um, uh, the last question is more about research methods, you know, research approach. And this question is about substantive areas and what are the topics that are important um, that I think we, uh, that I would love to see more attention paid to. Um, I think that United Nations SDGs is a good starting point. Uh, a few years ago, when I give talks, I, I would inevitably bring in the SDGs and more than half the people, Americans, I mean, would not have heard of it. I was really astounded. But now in the last few years, it's gotten a lot more attention, okay? So, but the, USSD, uh, the UN SDGs uh, are about solving world's problems uh, by calling on businesses to work in partnership with government and with uh, civil society to solve those problems. And the SDG problems are all in the economic, in the social justice, education, climate areas. So it's all about the problems that businesses have contributed to negatively, but they can also contribute to positively. And that's UN's challenge is to challenge businesses to come to step up to be solutions and not problems of our world, okay? So I think there's a lot of opportunities for IB scholars to work in the SDG areas. Now, one of the IBs, uh, the current Dean of the Fellows, Lorraine Eaton, has a paper on SDG five, gender inequality, okay? She, she uh, her paper, won a prize for won the award for responsible research. Okay, so that's, that's an example. But uh, in globalization, our research in the past have focused on wealth creation. I think we should focus on both wealth creation, grow the pie and on wealth distribution, have a more equal distribution of, of benefits uh, from globalization. So we know that the priority on economic growth has led to depletion of natural resources, uh, destruction of the ecosystem, creation of tremendous inequality across the countries, across the world, and wealth is concentrated in 
a small number of people and the livelihood, the survivability of people, the inhabitants of this earth is more and more at risk. So now we, we, we as IP scholars, I believe it's part of our responsibility to give businesses the tools, the knowledge to help them to become agents of positive change, okay? So we can improve our children's lives, our, um, our own our students' lives, their, their children's lives, and so forth. And IB scholars actually are already um, uh, thinking along this line. And AIB is poised to pivot to us research that matters to society. I, I just, I don't know whether you did. You did. I read um, our president, Jeremy Clegg's uh, essay in the latest issue of AIB News. And he was talking about how AIB contributes to a better world by valuing diversity in thoughts and in actions. And a new issue of GIPS has many papers on very timely topics. And the editorial is about encouraging more replication research. Now, this is really clearly in the right direction. And that's what I meant that I see IB both had the opportunity, but also have the motivation now to move towards more responsible research to help businesses to be positive agents of change. So there's this, I mean, if you, you want to keep on and on, the World Economic Forum, uh, the latest 2022 uh, Global Risk Report outlines seven areas that are major problems that, that business are that MNCs are concerned about. So, so given, given that, that we know that the world is in such dire condition, we as scholars have such opportunity and resources to do research. We, I hope that we feel an obligation to do our part to contribute useful knowledge uh, founded on sound methodology to help businesses to be uh, responsible multinationals, responsible local businesses. And that's what I hope IB research will focus on in the next five to 10 years. Beautiful, thank you. Now I want to uh, connect this topic to the next question about the evolving culture of IB scholarship from where we started in 1950s, 60s, uh, 70s uh, with the pillars of IB and right, right. It, uh, what do you see? Uh, what are we gaining along the way? What are we losing uh, on this progression? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm sure you, 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 that there's a story behind it. Why I'm pushing for more responsible research going forward. Um, if we're already doing it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it. <laughs> so uh, definitely. Um, now, IP. Uh, there is a, there is. Um, a, uh, there are several problems in, uh, in, in the broader management field, and IB uh, scholarship is part of this broader management field. So, so we are all under the same culture um, that is influencing our research priorities and practices. Uh, and um, uh, the, the, in my view, the research culture that has evolved in the past 20, 30 years uh, has put a lot of pressure uh, and constraint on scientific work in the business schools, okay? And uh, we have, uh, you, uh, I'm gonna use some language that's pretty, it might be considered strong. I, I feel that we have lost both the freedom and the responsibility uh, uh, in, our, in, in, our, in our scientific activities. Uh, in other words, we are expected to publish uh, 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 only topics that we believe editors and reviewers like. <laughs> 
using methods and theories that's acceptable to them, uh, have to publish them in certain journals and have to have certain number of papers to, in order to be considered uh, worthy of retention uh, based on a, on a tenure process. So um, the uh, messy problems that we talked about uh, already and a new phenomena, new problems and cyber issues, um, uh, cybersecurity, uh, nature of work affected by uh, public health, you know, there's so many topics uh, of new work. Uh, we don't dare to touch them because there's not a literature behind it and there's no theory yet for us to use. And theorizing is difficult for new scholars so they can only go to uh, the literature for familiar topics and, and, and well-accepted theories and, and try to polish it a little bit on the, on the margins. So important phenomena, exploratory research and important discoveries no matter, uh, yeah, uh, the, because they are preliminary, without the theory, you have no way to, to, to publish it. So this push for for a number of publications uh, uh, and, 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 and what kind of research is acceptable by the journals really have put a constraint on our young scholars who don't feel to pursue their passion, who don't feel they can develop, uh, be their best in terms of, in terms of uh, qualitative people shied away from qualitative research because those are harder to publish. People shy away from new problems uh, because they are difficult to to study. So so um, and 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 the, the publication pressure basically uh, becomes like uh, like a straitjacket. Um, and and so this culture is very unproductive, not fruitful, and it depresses creativity and it demotivates young scholars. So, so we're working hard, try to relieve, relieve that pressure and uh, we're making small progress. So, so, the, the, so I wanna end with good news is that things are beginning to change. So young scholars should feel, uh, hopefully they feel a little more, can take a little more courage to have two parallel research tracks. One is look at problems they care about. Uh, one is problem the local research that is a more safe research that's a little bit more easier to publish. But hopefully, eventually, that this safe to publish idea is really not what we want. That culture is just not a good culture. It's not science. It is just survival tools. <laughs> so, so that's why I say that's uh, 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 a problem. I hope that a few years later, we don't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> When you said, uh, you know, I have good news, I thought, I thought maybe you're going to make an announcement about the new journal that would like to No, <laughs> no, 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 we don't <coughs> want to. I started a new journal 18 years, 14, 15 years ago. No, no, I don't think a new journal is the solution to it. It's changing the journal practices is the solution to it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, the third segment, advice mentoring. Uh, what was the best advice you received when you were going through the program uh, yourself, when, when you were going through the PhD program? What is the basic advice I seek? What did you receive as an advice when you were going through the PhD? Who was your advisor? Uh, well, I, I went through a rather untraditional approach to my PhD program. Um, my informal advisors are many. Uh, people that help me. Um, my main advisor actually is not an empirical researcher, uh, but he was he was great mentor. Okay, um, 
So um, I study under advisor, uh, informal advisor at um, yeah, University of Southern California, um, and then someone who went to Berkeley. Uh, some professor went to Berkeley. Uh, so basically, my committees are now on my committee. <laughs> my committee members are now on my committee, and I, I learned about um, um, uh, scholarship. Um, in terms of, um, uh, I tell you, one of the professors who taught me the most, he left academia a year after I entered academic because he didn't like the publication game. It was started at that time, okay? Mm -hmm. So I learned, but fortunately there are many other professors who were loving what they do. So I learned the learned publication is, is important. And, and I also, um, uh, I'm a, I'm a fairly independent thinker. I, I, you know, I went to a PhD because I wanted to help practice so that, that the side of me always stay with me. Though I only study problems that have direct relevance for practice. And okay. so my advisor and my managers that I learned a lot who, whose questions inspire me to, to, uh, to pursue a PhD program. Perfect. Now, what do you wish you had known when you were starting out that that would save you so much pain and uh, agony if you knew uh, those tricks. What are the things I wish I know? What I, what I wish I, um, like I said before, the only thing I, uh, I wish I had done is to learn more uh, experimental design. And I would, I could only do that if I, um, spend more time in a PhD program. I finished my PhD in three years. So I basically took one year of coursework, spent two years on a dissertation. Normally we do two years of coursework, three years on a dissertation. Yeah. So I didn't learn a lot of things during my dissertation. So I, I, um, I, I, if I had stayed on for one more year, take many more classes, and I probably might be a different researcher today. Um, I don't know. I mean, hindsight is on 2020. I don't, I don't know. It's a role, not travel. You don't know what you might become. Well, what's your advice to junior faculty, to PhD students about the skills that they should focus on, that they should hone on, hone in on? Um, very important question. Um, in the last um, 10, 20 years, I've worked in many universities, including all the visiting universities in China, Hong Kong, US, and all the research training of students are on methods, how to do research, and not enough, sometimes not at all, on why we do research, and what is the responsibility of social science for society. So it's not so much skill per se, but it's basic knowledge about science the role of science, what is scientific reasoning, scientific thinking, what are the unique challenges in social science that's different from natural science? How do we make progress in science? Okay, What role do personal and social values play in science? Our science today, even though people sometimes challenge me, say, we have academic freedom. Whose values should say what, how I do my research? Oh, it should be value-free but our science is laden with 
social, personal values, preferences, biases, okay? So we need to understand the role of values in science and how does science contribute to humanity, both progress and demise. And we know science has done both, okay? And then how can a young scientists know they can, what can they do to change? What can they do to contribute to science if science is off the wrong track, okay? As Thomas Kuhn said, revolutionary science and normal science, both are important. So what is the distinction? Who's responsible for what? As it turns out, most revolutionary science new ideas came from young new graduates in natural sciences for many, many years. And that in fact is the case in social science as well. If you read the book, Michael Hitt's book on great minds and management, there are 24 scholars, famous scholars with famous theories. Most of their work were their dissertation or pre-dissertation ideas. So young scholars are our future, but they need to know what is science, what's the responsibility of science for policy, for practice. And that basic understanding is what I hope young scholars, students, and, and junior faculty go back and learn it. Because if you don't learn it well, you'll become basically um, a worker of science, not a thinker of social science. Mm. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And what are uh, the common mistakes that you see, uh, especially with uh, junior faculty uh, or PhD students um, make? What are the yeah. mistakes? Well, what would you say don't do? Right, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Good question. Um, I, I would offer three, uh, three things that, as I observed in the last 10, 20 years. Um, avoid, avoid being an instrument of paper writing because they all become instruments of paper writing at the cost of quality and impact. So I wanna mention a quote from Einstein. He said, an academic career in which a person is forced to produce scientific writing in great amounts creates a danger of intellectual superficiality. Okay, let me read again. Academic career in which a person is forced to produce scientific writings in great amounts creates a danger of intellectual superficiality. In other words, you cannot, be, you cannot produce great papers in quantity. Great papers come in very rare numbers. So we should strive to write that one great paper that can change the world and not write 20 papers that don't matter anything. Okay, so that's why I say avoid being an instrument. Okay, so that's my, my second, second is avoid, avoid focusing on quantity uh, and, uh, and instead on quality. Okay, the third area, the third avoidance is avoid being like everybody else. Be yourself. Okay, be unique, develop your unique self and make a difference in your own unique ways. Find what you care about the most and have the courage to pursue with your whole heart, soul, and might. Your individuality is a gift to the world. 
Remember, your individuality is a gift to the world. Don't be like everyone else, because there's a lot of pressure to be like everyone else. You know, we compare number of publications, number of revisions, <laughs> number of journals. There's like a common formula. Okay, that really is not what science is about. Science is about each individual uniquely find your contribution to make. Okay. Whether incremental science, normal science, or revolutionary science. And remember, it's 10% revolution, 90% normal science. So we should value normal science, we should value application, and be proud to be a research, researcher in that area. But have your aspiration to produce that one big idea in your life. Okay. So each if each scholar can produce one big idea that can change one practice, you already make a contribution, you already deserve tenure. And that's my message to deans and senior scholars. Perfect, so, thank you. So, uh, uh, And for the sake of time, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about evidence? Oh, for the sake of time, I think we should not go on, let me babble on. <laughs> I think you've asked answer all the important questions and I hope that my answer provides some thought for food, uh, yes, some food yes. for thought. <laughs> Thank so, you. Thank you. So I really enjoyed the session. I appreciate the opportunity and, and, and to share my humble experiences and views. So Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, you guys. Uh, I, uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Uh, this was very helpful and uh, eye-opening. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.